I invite you to open a Bible to the Gospel of Mark chapter 16. We're going to read the first eight verses. Uh, Before Easter, what we're doing is looking at the basic truth of our faith that Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose again. That's how Paul summarizes it in 1 Corinthians 15. And in that summary statement, that would have been one of the earliest letters written in the New Testament. And so that even when Paul wrote that, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had not themselves been written yet. But this basic truth of most of the earliest believers came uh, and, and were ethnically Jewish. But increasingly, there was this sense that there are some things that you believe that not every Jew believes. And uh, what is it that you believe that is a little bit different? And it centers around the person and the work of Jesus. And so to believe for them of Jewish background that Christ is the Messiah who came, who died for our sins, was buried and rose again, is where eventually they started to be called Christians, followers of Christ, that these are the essential elements of that each of the gospel writers is seeking to tell us of how significant that is and what a difference that that makes for us. And then we see in Romans chapter 6 when Paul talks about baptism in a similar way, he emphasizes that all of us who choose to follow after Christ, we die to our old selves. We believe that all of our sin and the punishment for it is buried and that we are risen again to new life to now live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it's the foundation of our faith in what Jesus has done and it's also supposed to be a framework in how we understand just what it means to be an everyday ordinary Christian in following after him. And so last week we looked at the Gospel of Matthew uh, telling us that story and Matthew more than anyone and partly therefore it's why it's placed first in order is not necessarily because it was written first, it could have been written first, but he's the one who takes the most amount of time to show how everything Jesus did was to fulfill what had been prophesied in the Old Testament. And so he goes through a genealogy and he quotes a specific scripture more than anybody else to say, this Jesus is the one who fulfills all of these promises that were made in the Old Testament. Mark is half the size of Matthew and Luke. So if you, like me, like things being shorter, uh, Mark might be uh, one of your favorites. It's half the time, but therefore it moves quick. It is fast paced. When we meet Jesus, he's already an adult uh, and uh, he's inviting quickly people to repentance. And so this is what we read uh, as Mark tells us the resurrection story in chapter 16. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that's where we're going to stop for now. One of the phrases that Mark includes here 
that is unique is as the women come and encounter the reality that Jesus is risen, the message that they hear from the angel is do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. And this is a theme throughout his gospel is reminding all of us of this uh, unique truth about Jesus that he was Jesus of Nazareth. So in chapter one, we're first introduced to John the Baptist. He's out in the wilderness baptizing and then Mark tells us, and then Jesus came from Nazareth to be baptized by him. And before the chapter ends, Jesus is coming to miraculously heal someone and a demon says, you, Jesus of Nazareth, what have you to do with us? I know you're the Holy One of Israel. And so we have it, there's the first two ways he's introduced to us in chapter one. And then when we come to the end, as we hear the story of the resurrection, we're reminded that this resurrected king is Jesus of Nazareth. Where again, uh, if you like me, grew up in a church environment and went to Sunday school and heard the stories, you heard of Nazareth all the time. And so it's, it's a name you're familiar with that is as familiar to you as any other town you've heard. Uh, but I can remember we had a doctor's appointment for our oldest son shortly after we got back from uh, Israel. And uh, our son had something that required seeing a pediatric dermatologist every few months. And we were now coming for a follow-up and uh, the doctor knew that we had just gone on a big trip, but he couldn't remember where. And so, you know, he asks our son, you know, where did you go? And so Levi is really excited. He goes, we went to the Sea of Galilee. And there was a completely blank stare on the doctor's part. Where? Like, never heard of it. Did we drive there? Did we fly there? Did we? And it was a good reminder for us of, oh, that does mean nothing to a lot of people brilliant guy, loved having him, he cared for our son uh, so well, but yeah, someone who did not, like me, grow up and hear some of these names. Uh, But it wasn't until uh, we ourselves had the opportunity to go where we realized uh, what it means to be from Nazareth. And so even those of you who maybe like me grew up in church, uh, if, if you know that Jerusalem is important, and then the area around Jerusalem is called Judea. And then you know the Samaritans didn't have a real good relationship with the Jews. Samaria is like just north of Jerusalem and Judea. And then Galilee, where Nazareth is, is above Samaria. And so that's why in one of the stories where Jesus says, uh, when they meet the woman at the well, that they, they needed to go through Samaria to get back. Well, You do, but you could also go around it if you want. But basically, Galilee and Nazareth is even further away than Samaria, where there's already animosity between the people of Samaria and the people who are uh, uh, centered in Judea and in and around Jerusalem. And so Nazareth is very much the countryside. It's not significant. Even in their own day, they would have said, Nazareth, the Sea of Galilee. They wouldn't have called it a sea. They would have thought of it as a lake if they were more familiar uh, with the Mediterranean Sea. It's only people from small towns would call the Sea of Galilee the Sea of Galilee. You can see the whole thing when you're standing there. It's beautiful, but it gives you the sense that, yeah, Jesus's ministry was on the outskirts of where most of the people were. And so it often talks about him going from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue, not 
from temple and back to temple and being in the major big city. He was from this small town of Nazareth and most of his ministry happened outside of Jerusalem. And so in Mark's gospel, he only tells us about one time that Jesus went to Jerusalem and it was to die. So if you will, Jesus' whole ministry takes place where people come from Jerusalem to hear what he's doing and they have questions of him But what so many people have invested their whole lives in and what they think is the most important thing, Jesus by his behavior kind of shows this sense that that's not the main thing. That isn't what makes you significant. That isn't what makes you special with the Father. That he could do so much of it on the outskirts of it to say where you think real life and hope and happiness is found is, is not in those things. And so regularly he is identified by this marker that is an incredibly humble marker on his part. Uh, and I don't know about you, but for me, Akron, Ohio was not something that was usually on the map when I talked to people and told them, you know, where are you from? And I would say, Akron, Ohio, and say, where is that? And LeBron James has helped that more than anybody else to say, I've at least heard of it before uh, and know where it is and can, can reference it. But uh, I saw uh, our kids now enjoy this show called the Kids Baking Championship on the Food Network. I don't know if it's still going or if we're just catching up on old things, but they're in the fifth season now and there's a kid from Akron, Ohio on it. And you could just see this like, there's a kid? Like, like I know where that is. That's where we're from. And there's this sense of excitement because there aren't too many places where they, uh, where they see that name. And actually, we almost never make time uh, for it, but we ended up catching like just a little bit of the NBA All-Star game this year. And the little bit that we caught is when they were interviewing Steph Curry, he was on break, and the whole conversation was about how he was born in Akron, Ohio, because he was born when his dad played for the Cavs, and so that he and LeBron were actually born in the same hospital in Akron, Ohio, which I told my kids all the time, but now it was like finally, they believed it. Like, they know I'm, I can exaggerate some things. And so it was like, no, it's like, it's really real. Uh, it's true. And we can have sometimes uh, that sense of... Uh, not shame per se, but you know when you come from a place that isn't necessarily popular or that everybody knows about. And then also, uh, this year for us was the first time uh, with March Madness, I had our oldest Levi fill out a bracket. And I was trying to tell him, you know, you don't win this by picking who everybody thinks is going to win. Because everybody picks who everybody thinks is going to win. So you win this if you pick the Cinderella story. If you pick the upset then that's what helps you get ahead, which might have been bad advice because then you picked a whole bunch of upsets um, that haven't necessarily gone really well, and he picked Ohio State to win the whole thing, which they lost, yeah, ouch. Uh, So our bracket is busted right away. Uh, If you allow me a little bit of church humor, though, it was an example exactly of that kind of thing. If you picked Oral Roberts to beat Ohio State, you're a genius. Because most people are like, Oral Roberts, where is that? What is that? That's a person's name. It's a, it's a small Pentecostal school. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever looked at the church curmudgeon on Twitter, but his commentary on the game was, I thought, hilarious. He said, Pentecostals will always beat Baptists in basketball because you have to raise your hands to play defense in basketball. <laughs> uh, which was great. 
but it's true. If you somehow could find the number 16 seed or the number 15 that no one's counting on, no one has any expectation of, and you can say, no, I see something there, even today you'd be considered a genius. And Jesus of Nazareth is not a resume builder. It's not something that would cause anybody to say, wow, you must come from good stock. You must be brilliant. You must... No, they, Jesus of Nazareth, like, that, you don't sound like you're a Pharisee. You don't sound like you're a Sadducee. You don't sound like you're a high priest. You don't, like, this name would not have been a name that gave him uh, increasing sort of uh, clout. Sorry, let me get this fixed. Would have given him increasing clout among people. And so in Mark's emphasis from the beginning to identify him this way, one of the first counter encounters of an unclean spirit saying Jesus of Nazareth and then at the resurrection story reminding us he is risen again but don't forget where he came from don't forget just how humble he is like it was humble enough that he'd be willing to come to the earth if he would have come to the earth and been a ruler on the earth that still would have been humility still would have been humility but that he would come to the earth and be willing to be from a small town like Nazareth that would give him no real credentials just shows the heart of Christ uh, to be accessible for each and every one of us and so this Jesus of Nazareth when he refers to himself the title that he most often gives himself is the son of man so now I invite you to go to chapter 2 of the gospel of Mark where you'll see and we'll just use one example uh, in Mark chapter 2. So this Jesus of Nazareth, who has come and invites us all to repent and follow after him, humble enough to be from a small town, is also willing to identify himself as the Son of Man. And so uh, we'll read beginning in verse 1 to 12. This is one of the more dramatic stories uh, that's a favorite of mine uh, in the life of Jesus. And when he returned to Capernaum, which is right on the Sea of Galilee, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had thus questioned within himself, within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And if you read through the Gospel of Mark this week, you saw regularly Jesus refer to himself as the son of man 
And as he did amazing and miraculous things, one of the unique features of, God, of Mark's gospel is that he also kept telling people not to tell people. He would do things and then say, now don't go and run and just tell everybody about this. <clears throat> Instead, go and offer a sacrifice of praise. And we were left to wonder, like, why would Jesus, one, constantly refer to himself in this way, and why would he regularly tell people not to tell people and that even though he kept telling people not to tell people they kept hearing about him and they kept coming and that's like in our story so many people keep coming even though he's telling them not to tell people that they have to break open the roof in order to bring their friend in and Jesus heals this man so it's not that Jesus has a lack of compassion it's not that he only wants a few people to know and not a lot of other people to know he has compassion for all the people that are brought to him but again, he's manifesting this attribute of humility. He is not, while he has come to serve other people, trying to draw all the attention to himself. He has come for us. And so regularly, when he could use a situation to then manipulate people or gain power over them, he regularly chooses not to. And it's a beautiful thing to see because I know in all the ways I struggle with pride, like if I accomplish something, a lot of people in my life know about it. Like if I told someone to get up and walk when they couldn't walk or if I, I would love telling people the great things I did. And here's Jesus who has the power to do amazing things, but whose sole purpose is not just to draw attention to himself but to identify with people, to make sure that everybody feels comfortable being around him, that everybody feels like they could come to him with whatever their needs are. And part of that is that he walks around not giving the sense to everybody that they're unworthy of him. And that's a beautiful thing, that this, he came to be Jesus of Nazareth, who was the son of man, so that anybody and everybody who desired to follow after him would believe that they could. And when these four friends break open the roof and they bring their friend down, he doesn't say, guys, I'm too busy. There's too many people here. Like He has compassion on them. And we need to know he has that compassion and that humility. Because if he's going to eventually go to the cross and die for our sins it would make sense that his life before that would be characterized by ongoing sacrifice and sin. The gospel story is not that he lived for himself for 30-some years and then he had a change of heart and decided to die on a cross. It's that he came with this purpose in mind. So the whole time he was here, this is what he was like. This is who he is from the inside out, from Monday to Sunday, from birth to to death he is this type of person who hasn't come for what all of his power and authority can do for himself but for what it can do for us and that's what then makes one of the beautiful testimonies that Matthew recorded as well but Mark does in the testimony of the centurion of the the testimony of the centurion at the crucifixion and so we'll close in Mark 15 so Mark chapter 15, we finally see the death of Christ on the cross for us. Beginning in verse 33, 
It says, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, and saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. And so that's our last point, that this Jesus of Nazareth, who was the son of man, was the son of God. You could, you could almost imagine the centurion hearing this cry of Jesus my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then seeing him die, just as much say, this is a God-forsaken man. Like he's treated way worse than anybody else on a cross that day, such that he dies quicker than any of them. But the centurion doesn't say, surely this is a God-forsaken man. The centurion says, surely this man is the Son of God. Because one of the things that has become clear in the darkness, in the earthquake, is that this man did not have to die. He could have stopped it. That this man did not deserve to die. He was innocent. You could just see the irrational hatred on the part of the crowd. But yet this man was willing to die. He is not God forsaken. He is the son of God. Didn't have to do it. Didn't deserve to do it. But willingly for your sake and mine to be a sacrifice let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you for the truth of your word that shows us the beauty of your son who was so humble as to be from an ordinary place that wouldn't have been on the radar of still 99% of the world And when several opportunities would have come for him to claim prematurely a, a, a new crown and an authority and assemble an army around him in Galilee to lead a revolt, he resisted those temptations and instead spoke forgiveness over sins and confronted people on where they stood with you. And when he could have just uh, ridden out the red carpet of popularity, understood his primary goal and mission for each and every one of us. And so we thank you that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And we thank you that the Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. And we pray that you would help us to 
in our hearts be moved by the wonder of that power and goodness. And to think of all the ways that you desire us in claiming to be followers of his, to do good for the sake of others without seeking to draw attention to ourselves, to be willing to make sacrifices that we don't have to do, but as your people that we are simply willing to do in your name. We need your grace through your Holy Spirit to do all of that. And so we pray for it in Jesus' name.